Hey everyone, before we open today's file, please make sure to follow us on Instagram at d.s.radio where you can find all the images that go along with today's case. You can drop us an email at contact.dsradio at gmail.com. You can find all of our socials in the Linktree bio on our Instagram profile, including links to merch. If you're feeling especially generous, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dystopian simulation radio, where you can get access to our exclusive Instagram page and make suggestions for upcoming episode topics that you would like us to cover. Speaking of Patreon, thanks to our Patreons, Riff Cult, Cropley Crab, Cash Broadus, Raspberry Jr., Jason R. Nelson, Creepy Paper, Jamie Suit, Michael Laughlin, Lindsay Keller, Mike Wright, Gria Weaver, Kelsey Carithers, Linz Gibbon, Drake Holvig, Only Child, Michael M, Wesley Akers, Riaz K, Emily Medeiros, Pip, Heather Wynn, Graves, Devin Sweatshirt, The Ordained Sinister Minister, and Philip Hoffman. And welcome to Dystopian Simulation Radio. I'm your host, Linz. Chris? 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 Oh, yeah. Totally forgot. Chris has abandoned me and is currently somewhere in the rural Japanese countryside. So it's just me this week. (laughs) All jokes aside, though, Chris really is in Japan. But his microphone got lost at Heathrow. Well done, Heathrow. And he wanted me to pass that along. And I said that I would hold the fort this week and record a little bonus solo episode. So you have something to tide you over while we wait for Chris to return next week. And he will be returning next week. So don't worry, he will be back. If you're a new listener, it's not usually just me. Every week, Chris and I take turns telling each other a story. If you want a truer example of what the podcast is usually like, please go dip into the archives and have a listen. But stick with me if you want to listen to quite a strange true crime story. A few of you might already know this, but I blog for the OGs of the true crime scene, Generation Y podcast. I blog every week on a Tuesday at genypod.com. You can find the blog in the social media link on their website. If for some reason you've never listened to Generation Y before, please go and check them out. They are, like I said, they're the pioneers of the true crime podcasting world and they're just great people overall. They're really supportive of everything I have done and everything I do. So I really appreciate them. And Erin, if you're listening to this, let's get some balls and knees sometime. (laughs) 
All right, now to today's episode. So I chose a case, I kind of stuck with the beach theme accidentally, and I'm heading off to Sweden this week, so I thought I would cover another Swedish case. And I found a case that's not too far from home, involving a Swedish national who was found dead on a beach in the early 2000s. And when a family tried to figure out what had happened, they were left with more questions than answers. This story does contain descriptions of death and details of autopsy results. So if that's something that you find triggering, please select another episode from the archives. I chose this case because it reminded me of a few cases that I've covered in the past, one of them being the Emma Filipov case. If you don't know about the Emma Filipov case, Nighttime Podcast has an amazing series covering it with exclusive interviews of people involved in the story. And Jordan is awesome. I love Jordan. Nighttime is just a great podcast. The case also reminded me of the disappearance of Lars Mittank. You may remember this case. It kind of went viral online, actually, for the footage of Lars running away from the airport in Bulgaria, never to be seen again after planning to go home. So this case is the case of Annie Boyesen. He was found on a beach in Scotland after traveling over from Sweden. Since I'm alone on this episode, I decided just to present this case to you as a story. So I thought it could be something that you put on when you drive, before you sleep, while you're doing a task at home, whatever it might be. If you want to follow along and see any of the visuals that I will be talking about in today's case, please go to our Instagram at d.s.radio where all images for all episodes are always posted. If you would like to support us on Patreon, come and join us over there at patreon.com forward slash dystopian simulation radio. Hope you enjoy the episode today. Thanks a lot, everybody. Annie Christina Boyesen was just 30 years old when she was discovered dead on a beach in Scotland in 2005. Her body was found at 8.23am on Sunday, December 4th, 2005, by a dog walker just off Grangemere Road. Investigators soon arrived at the scene and cordoned off the area, informing journalists that there seemed to be no suspicious circumstances surrounding the Swedish national's death, suggesting it was a suicide. They put bags over Annie's hands and zipped her up into a body bag, removing her from the scene and transporting her to Crosshouse Hospital in Kilmanek. By Monday afternoon, Annie's family had been informed that she had committed suicide. At first the story seemed like a tragic accident, but as Annie's family searched for information, they were left with more questions than answers. Before we get into what happens next, here's some background on Annie. Annie Christina Boyesen was born on February 7, 1975, near Malmö in Sweden. She moved with her family to Stockholm in 1987 when she was just 12 years old. Her mother was Swedish and her father was Hungarian and she was the second of four children. A talented musician, she formed a band called Annie and the Wolves with her brothers and sisters and they wrote and recorded several songs together.
Annie went on to study music in college. She then studied hospitality and worked various jobs. She could speak Swedish, Danish, Finnish, Hungarian, French and English. Her best friend Maria described her as a Viking woman, an exhibitionist with a naive side that could make her vulnerable. She stayed at Linton Court Apartments on Muriston Road in Dalry and worked at the Whiskey Centre. She was happy with her hospitality job and according to a stand-in receptionist at Linton Court Apartments, Annie was always happy and talkative and would often go to the local rugby club. In 2005, Annie's job at the Whiskey Centre came to an end and she returned to Sweden. By October, however, she was back in Scotland looking for a job that would help her have a more permanent residence there. It took two days for the autopsy to be performed and the results did not sit right with Annie's family. A post-mortem examination revealed the following. The body was heavily contaminated by sand and seaweed, the lungs were congested and the air passages contained a frothy material. The report read, quote, White, clear, frothy fluid is present coming from the mouth. The cause of death was determined to be drowning. There were other injuries noted in the report, including small bruises to the right of the temple, a depression in the skin, scratches and scuffs on the skin of her left arm, and, quote, two patterned, roughly square, contused areas. These abrasions and surface injuries were put down to the results of Annie's body tumbling in the waves. Police stated these injuries were sustained as a result of exposure to the elements and general decomposition. Bruising happens when a person is alive and as a result of blunt force trauma to the area and not after death. Although requests have been made over the years to obtain pictures from the autopsy, they have been refused on various grounds. For example, the investigations not being a matter of public interest or, in the case of Annie's own family's request, jeopardizing a future investigation. Following the autopsy, Annie's body was driven to London, where she remained for two weeks in the hands of Global Network's funeral assistance. Annie's body was transported to London to be prepared for return to Sweden, as per the insurance policy she had at the time. After two weeks in London, Annie's body was returned to Sweden by air and transported to Dana Bay's funeral home, where her appearance would shock funeral directors. Her clothing, still wet, was also sent back to Sweden, but her jacket was missing. Annie's family became concerned that police may have missed potential clues because they assumed Annie's death to be a suicide and therefore did not treat the area in which she was discovered as a crime scene. On December 15th, toxicology reports were performed and revealed that Annie had a very small amount of alcohol in her system, 19 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood, indicating that she had either drank the night before she was found dead or on the day. The volume was well under the limit. Annie rarely consumed alcohol in her day-to-day life. The toxicology report also noted that she had no drugs in her system. The family would receive these toxicology reports four years after requesting the results. Annie's body was returned to Sweden several days later on December 16th, displaying more bruising than seemed to be recorded in the autopsy report. When Gunn Danberg and Lennart Svensson, two undertakers in the care of Annie's body back in Sweden, 
lifted the lid of her coffin, they were taken aback by the extent of the bruises to her body. They noted large hand-sized bruises to Annie's side and right arm, as well as bruising behind her right ear, which had not been noted on the post-mortem examination performed back in Scotland. It is true that bruise-like marks can appear a couple of days after post-mortem examination that may not have been noticeable during the initial examination. Annie's family were shocked to see what appeared to be additional and more pronounced bruising to the decedent's body. Although assured the bruising was a result of hypostasis, when the blood of a decedent settles during the early post-mortem interval, Danneberg and Svensson were confident to voice that this was not, in their experienced opinions, the case. Post-mortem lividity usually becomes apparent and fixed within 8-12 to 12 hours after a person's death. Annie's body remained in Danneberg Funeral Home for more than a year before she was finally laid to rest. She remained frozen while her family searched for answers. In 2020, 15 years after Annie's death, Danneberg spoke with Sky News about the case and said, The first thing we did, of course, was that we came into the room and we saw Annie in the transportation coffin and saw all this makeup and the hair was missing. A drowned body does not look like this. Danneberg expected to see Annie's long blonde hair and was shocked to see that it had been pulled out from the scalp. She also said she noticed what she thought to be blue and black thumb marks around Annie's neck. These markings were not recorded in the Scottish autopsy report. The funeral company in London would later shine some light on the matter of Annie's missing hair when the operations director of the funeral home wrote a letter to Danube's funeral home in Sweden. This letter was read publicly for the first time in a Sky News documentary on the case. The letter, which was not dated, but was received after Annie's return to Sweden, read, With regards to the above case, I would like to offer a full explanation of events that took place. During the restoration of Annie's hair in particular, we found that the hair was falling out due to washing and combing. I can verify that she did have significant bruising to her body, which for reasons I cannot explain, were not included in the autopsy report. I find this to be quite unusual considering the circumstances of her death and I recommend a contact with the hospital coroner in this respect. Oftentimes during decomposition, the hair will fall out during combing due to a weakening of roots at the scalp. The company said that Annie's remains had been improperly stored and accelerated decomposition. According to pathologists, Hair ripped from the scalp during a scuffle when the person is alive would result in bruising and bleeding. Annie's body did not show these signs. Danneberg said the injuries that she observed that day never left her and that she believes they are indications of foul play and not suicide or death by drowning and that she would testify as such in a court of law. A second autopsy was performed in Gothenburg and also concluded that the cause of death was drowning. The same froth was identified in the airways, as well as congestion of the lungs. Annie's family have one older, grainy picture of Annie's body, taken around one month and one week after her death, which shows areas of discoloration to the head area. This discoloration to the head area 
was not noted on the initial report in Scotland. However, it was noted in the second report in Sweden. It was also mentioned that the discoloration could have happened post-mortem. Although drowning is the cause of death on both reports, it cannot be 100% ruled out that Annie was a victim of a violent crime. Annie also had scratches on her knees, which could be put down to how a body in water is always positioned, face down. A body in shallow water would be dragged back and forth with the ebbs and flows of the tide, dragging limbs against the rocks and sand as it does so. It should be noted here that Annie was wearing jeans when she was found. Swedish forensics took a sample of bone marrow from Annie's body and sent it off for analysis. They were analysed by a professor based in Strasbourg who discovered diatoms, specifically navicular lanceolata, which is specific to fresh water. Annie's family wanted to follow this up, so they spoke with experts in the field in an attempt to understand where these freshwater diatoms had come from. Specialists actually checked the salinity of the bay in Presswick to discover a, quote, weak influence of fresh water, and suggested that Annie may have ingested the navicular lanceolata through tap water long before she was found dead. This educated hypothesis was backed up by another specialist, who concurred and added that yes, it is possible navicular lanceolata may be living or transferred to a place like Prestwick Bay in very small numbers, but it would be very, very unlikely to be found in the bone marrow samples following a drowning incident. This specialist agreed that these specific freshwater diatoms were very unlikely to be from the sea. If Annie had have drowned in seawater, she would have ingested seawater, which would have been absorbed into her blood via the lungs and would show up on an examination of the lungs. Although Annie's family requested such a test to be performed, they were ultimately denied by the Swedish Authority for Forensic Medicine, or the RNV. This type of testing can be very costly, although it is not clear why the RNV denied the request. Police traced Annie's movements before she died through various CCTV footage. On December 3rd, she made her way 80 miles from Edinburgh to Prestwick Airport, where she was supposed to get a Ryanair standby flight back to Sweden. On the way to the airport at around 2.15pm, she attempted to withdraw cash from an ATM at Glasgow Central train station using her credit card twice. First she tried to take out £100 and the second time £50. She did not have sufficient funds to complete either transaction. Although she couldn't withdraw cash from the ATM, she had an uncashed cheque for £300 and she always had money in her filofax which she always had on a person. This filofax, which was filled with names and addresses, as well as quotes and writing, was never recovered. A woman resembling Annie was captured on CCTV at 3.15pm, crossing the footbridge that links Prestwick train station to Prestwick airport. Annie was captured again at 3.16pm, making her way into Prestwick terminal, but would abruptly leave. Annie's mother requested these CCTV images from the Scottish police, but her requests were denied. She sat down in protest outside of the police station, gaining the interest of politicians and journalists who eventually got involved. Finally, some footage was surrendered to Annie's mother. The CCTV handed over by police did not have timestamps or dates. 
She requested additional images, complete with dates and timestamps, and eventually received them. Far from shining some light on what happened shortly before Annie's death, the dates and times caused confusion. Even more perplexing, there was a jump in the footage and time frame that suggested the footage had been cut and edited. Try as they may, Annie's family could not get answers and continued to be stonewalled by the authorities on either side. The obtained footage showed that Annie entered Prestwick Airport from the walkway and proceeded to the escalator. She then walked from one end of the airport to the other, walking straight past the check-in desks and exiting at the car park at the other end of the building. Why she did this is unknown. Police suggested to Annie's parents that she did so to withdraw cash from an ATM, but there was no ATM in the car park, only a ticket machine. Whether or not Annie was aware of this is unclear, although she had been to Prestwick before, and it was the airport that she usually flew from. Annie was in the car park for three minutes before re-entering the building again at 3.19pm. Annie's mother said when she reviewed the footage of Annie walking back inside that she looked angry. When Annie's mother requested the car park CCTV footage, she was told there was none. Annie then walked back through the airport and left. She did not buy a Ryanair ticket for the 6.30 flight to Gothenburg as she had planned. Instead, she abruptly left. At 4.05pm, around 45 minutes after the CCTV footage captured Annie at the airport, police claimed to have spotted Annie on CCTV along Station Road in Prestwick Town. The quality of the CCTV footage is described as being so poor that only a figure with a bag can be identified, and there are allegedly no standout features to suggest or confirm that this individual was Annie. Two local men, Andrew Montgomery and Doug Parker, were the last witnesses to see Annie alive on the beach where she was later found dead. They described seeing Annie standing and staring out at the water. They didn't know why, but the scene felt unnerving as a winter Scottish mist hung above the sea. The sun had not yet set as they stopped momentarily to look at the figure by the water before continuing on their walk. 15 to 20 minutes later, the men had walked back in the same direction to see the figure still standing there. Andrew admitted that he hesitated to confirm he was actually looking at a woman due to the poor lighting and distance. However, he did see someone standing at the beach where Annie's body would later be found. This person stood there for a prolonged period of time on the night of Annie's death. Doug Parker stated that he could not add anything else to Andrew's account, detailing that they were around 150 yards from the figure and that they couldn't tell if the person was a man or woman, or even what they looked like. Doug was never contacted by police, and returned home to Lancashire with his wife the day after seeing the figure at the water's edge. Despite the fact that Andrew could not determine whether the figure was male or female, in 2007, an official letter was allegedly received by the Swedish government from a Scottish politician stating that an eyewitness, of which Andrew was the only one, had seen someone fitting Annie's description standing at the water at approximately 4.30pm. Although confidently stated, this statement was not exactly accurate to Andrew's telling of what he saw. 
Annie's mother felt frustrated with her interactions with Scottish police when looking for answers about her daughter's death. The Swedish Minister of Foreign Affairs pushed for the case of Annie's death to be reopened or at least looked at again. But instead, Hans Molander, a Swedish crime investigator, was extended an invite to Scotland. When he arrived, he was not allowed complete access to the reports and information. Rather, he was read specific sections of reports. His trip to Scotland did not provide the family with any additional information, and Melanda did not comment on the case again. One thing he did find, however, was that there was the DNA of an unknown female on Annie's hands. This DNA remained after Annie had spent an extended time in the water. It has been suggested that the DNA could have been picked up by contact with the surface. Annie's family appealed to the Crown Office to test the DNA, but they refused. Annie had planned to return to Sweden sometime within the first week or so of December. She had made plans to go Christmas shopping with her best friend Maria, and had even booked a hair appointment at a salon in Sweden, scheduled a day or so before Christmas. Annie loved her long hair and only trusted a specific hairdresser back home to cut and style it. Amongst her belongings found in a bag, there was two books she had checked out from a Swedish library, which her mother says is proof that she was planning to come home as she was likely returning them and had mentioned her intentions to do so previously. Annie had also paid the rent on her apartment in Scotland to cover the coming month. Her family have questioned, if she planned to commit suicide, why did she make plans to return to Sweden? And why did she make appointments she had no intention of keeping? Why would she pay a month's rent on her apartment in Scotland? In 2005, what are known as rendition flights were set to pass through Europe and land at Prestwick Airport. Rendition was the use of European countries by the CIA for the transport of illegal detention of prisoners. And in 2005, during the so-called War on Terror, prisoners were said to have landed at Prestwick Airport for fuel stop-offs. According to a 2020 BBC report, prisoners would allegedly be detained and transported to another country where they would be tortured for information. So how does this relate to the case of Annie Christina Boyerson? Well, in 2005, American journalist Christina Boyerson was said to be investigating these rendition flights. Both Annie and the American reporter shared the same names, Christina Boyerson. Christina was Annie's middle name and the reporter's first name. A previous assignment Christina worked on was the 1996 Trans World Airline Flight 800, a Boeing 747-100, that exploded above the Atlantic Ocean 12 minutes after leaving JFK International Airport in New York. The crash resulted in 280 fatalities, and Christina's investigation landed her pursued by the FBI and eventually without a job. She would go on to butt heads with the US government and intelligence agencies from that point onwards. Although Annie's mother feels the likelihood of the two being connected in a case of mistaken identity that ended up in the murder of her daughter by the CIA is slim, it's a conspiracy theory that she first heard when in Scotland looking for answers and couldn't ignore. When asked about the case of Annie's death, journalist Christina Boyerson said that she had nothing to say about the subject and denied the quotes attributed to her in newspaper articles about the case. There is no evidence of any links to the CIA and Annie Boyerson's family do not believe she was involved with the CIA.
According to Maria, Annie's best friend, Annie met a man who introduced himself as Martin Leslie and said he was an ex-international rugby player for New Zealand. They met at a nightclub in Edinburgh in the summer of 2005, several months before Annie died. Annie told Maria that they got along well. The man was described as good-looking and muscular. Annie's type since she liked rugby and presumably rugby players and the two went for a drink together, with the man purchasing a bottle of champagne. Nothing blossomed from their meetup, and Annie didn't speak about the ex-rugby player again until November 2005. She described how he showed up unannounced, while she was swimming at a pool where she regularly went, a pool where she had never once seen the man before. His presence made her feel uneasy. Around a week before her death, when Annie was at the rugby club as usual, the man showed up again. The New Zealand team, whom he claimed to have played for, came to Scotland to play against the national team, and Annie noticed him there. He turned to look back at her, and delivered a glare that Annie said made her feel unsafe. She had also recently learned that he had lied about his identity and that he was not Martin Leslie as he claimed to be. The actual Martin Leslie was later questioned in New Zealand and proved that he was not in Scotland at the time of Annie's death and had never met Annie. The man who was pretending to be Martin Leslie had actually studied the rugby player's life and he could even talk about Leslie's family and career in detail. According to Maria, Annie thought the man posing as Leslie was something of a sexual predator and said that she didn't want anything to do with him and didn't want to see him again. Annie had been behaving strangely on the days leading up to her death. She had made phone calls to her home in Sweden from a payphone far from Linton Apartments where she stayed and told her father and brother that she felt like she was being watched and that she thought she was being tracked online. She also told her brother not to call her phone while she was in the apartment for fear of being listened to. Initially, the family took this to mean that she was worried about those living around her overhearing, but in hindsight, they now believe that she meant her phone was being tracked. On the evening of December 2nd, Annie's mother had called her to voice her concerns regarding the phone calls she had made to her father and brother. When Annie answered, she said she was at her old workplace, the Whiskey Centre, talking to a former co-worker named Kat. Annie told her mother that, whatever she was going through, it was something that she, quote, had to deal with herself. The call didn't last very long, and it ended with Annie's mother telling her that they would talk later. That evening, Annie told a friend in Sweden that she was attending a party in the city that night, but nothing is known of the event, including the time, location, attendees, and if Annie ever actually went. Her movements that night and thereafter are vague, but the following day, Saturday the 3rd, Annie caught that train from Edinburgh to Prestwick via Glasgow to get to the airport. To add to the ever-growing mystery of what was happening in Annie's life leading up to her death, when Annie's phone bill was obtained from Linton Apartments, the calls she had made to her best friend Maria were not detailed on the call itinerary, leading Annie's loved ones to believe they had been deliberately erased. Annie's mother also claims that there were emails missing from Annie's email account, which she had access to. In fact, every email in both Annie's inbox and outbox had been permanently deleted, 
whether by Annie or a third party, remains unknown. Annie did not leave behind a suicide note. 